Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. Victor here, providing solo duties, hosting today, since Sona's actually on vacation with her family. Today's topic will be episode three of Dexter, New Blood, Smoke Signals. Additionally, rounding out the episode with our Sociopath of the Week segment, I have actually a book review, a book that came out earlier this year. It actually became a bestseller. Horror is having a bit of a resurgence in the past couple of years. And dovetailing with our TV recaps, there is actually going to be a star-studded series made of this book. And it's called The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. Before we get to all of that, remember to subscribe to us so that you know when new episodes are available. We are currently also recapping Succession, a really great episode of Succession this week. And with the next day or so, you should see another episode drop where I, once again, by myself, will be recapping what happened this week and my interpretation of what we're seeing, because I think there's a lot happening on the show right now. And they've been subtly laying some groundwork that may be now coming to fruition. So make sure you subscribe so you know when that episode becomes available. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcatcher you happen to be listening to us on. And of course, anytime you'd like to give us some feedback, email me at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. We love getting feedback. All right, to start things off in our Psychopath of the Week slot, I have a slightly different type of review. I'm reviewing a book. The book is called The Final Girl Support Group by Grady Hendrix. And this thing kind of took off early this year, became a bestseller. And horror in general has been having a little bit of a resurgence on the literary charts and intersecting with our conversation about killers in TV shows. This show is being turned into a TV show that will be on HBO, and it's apparently right now circling a very big all-star cast, including Charlize Theron, who's also producing, and Barbara and Andy Muschietti are involved with producing the show, and Andy Muschietti, Muschietti directing it, who famously directed the It films, the massively successful It movie, Stephen King adaptations recently. So if this is the talent that stays in place, it's going to be pretty star-studded, and I'm sure if they can actually bring in Charlize Theron as the linchpin of the cast, she'll be surrounded with other stars as well. And we'll probably see that sometime next year. Another thing this intersects with is the conversation I was having recently about my complaints about the new Halloween movies, where Laurie is this woman who had this trauma in her childhood and how she still never recovered from it. And the reason I bring that up is because this basic premise of this book is very similar to that Halloween, the new Halloween series of films, but it's much more successful at it, in my opinion. So basically what the story is about is these women who survived in this version of reality in the book, the serial killers in Halloween and in Friday the 13th and in A Nightmare on Elm Street and in Scream and in some other uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just the most prevalent ones, but others as well throughout the book are real killers. So the idea is that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a movie that exists in this version of reality in this book, but it was based on actual killings, like an exaggerated version of it. So for example, there's not a supernatural being, this dream killer. So the movies have extrapolated a supernatural element to the story, but the underlying story is true. Basically, and that's how it is for the Halloween movies, for the Friday 13th, and these girls that survived, not girls anymore, obviously, because the 
timeline of those films in this book are approximately correct. So we're looking at 40 years later, 50 years later, and some of the younger people's like, for example, the Scream analog here, her crimes happened when that movie came out approximately, which means that she's younger than the other ladies. And for those who aren't familiar, there's this concept of the final girl. This feminist uh, film critic came up with this idea that the final girl was this trial by fire that this woman character who survives the film. And that's become a motif, as you know, in all of these films. And these individual different survivors have created a support group where they hang out together and they really don't like each other oftentimes. They really don't get along with each other that much, but they have this thing that binds bonds them together. So even though this book is written by a man, I do think this is interesting that they get more into this feminine perspective of these women who are kind of stuck together in this situation, not happy that they are branded as these final girls, but it does bond them to each other. And the psychology of the characters is very interesting. We literally meet them at the support group where there is a therapist there who's helping them out. And what I like so much about this book is that I know it's been published this year, but it was originally written in 2014. So I'm sure it was rewritten along the way. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if there was a significant rewrite after the 2018, 2019, whenever that Halloween reboot came out a few years back, the most recent one. Because there's so many thematic similarities between the lead protagonist in the book versus that film. Interestingly, there is in the book a character that basically correlates to the Laurie Strode babysitter killers, but it is not the lead protagonist in the book. The lead protagonist in the book correlates to, of all things, a not very successful horror franchise. Or, I, you know what, there's been many, many sequels to this franchise, so maybe it's not that it's unsuccessful, but it's considered a lesser, which is basically Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is the killer Santa Claus movies. And she is our main protagonist. But what I like so much about her is they make her so utterly unlikable. <laughs> she is really, really an unlikable character. And she, because of her paranoia, obstinacy, and just her behavior throughout, and her lack of trusting in anybody, that she ends up getting people killed. She makes bad decisions that ends up injuring other people. But simultaneously, as unlikable as she is, this is what I think they get right versus the new Halloween movies. My criticism, if you've heard, once again, in the feed, if you want to track it down, I had kind of a critique of the new Halloween movie, which I did not like at all. But in general, this reboot of the Halloweens, that I think to myself, all right, she had a really bad night. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to minimize that this one night was so horrible that it wasn't terrible what she went through. But the idea that she was sitting around for 40 years trying to kill Michael Myers was annoying to me. It made, it, it made me think that it's such a negative message to say that once you've been victimized, remember you are a victim for the rest of your life. And that's basically how I read that film. And it didn't work for me. The psychology of it wasn't explored enough to, to, to be interesting to me. But they did a much better correction of it in this book. Not only is Laurie, I'm sorry, not Laurie, I'm take that back. Not only is the protagonist, whose uh, name is Lynette, not only is Lynette extremely unlikable, like I mentioned, her trauma is much more well-defined because she lived whereas her family died and she felt guilt for the circumstance of their deaths. And as the book unfolds, you see that there's an additional layer to her own guilt in their deaths which once again makes her even more unlikable, but makes her even more understandable why she has this trauma that she still holds. But much more importantly than that is that they show 
how the obsession over these girls, the way the media and these diehard fanatics who follow them around, because think about it, in this version of the world where these women are actual survivors of these uh, attacks, not only this, do they have their fans, who of course become completely toxic and threaten their lives in their own ways and stalk them as well. On top of that, the killers themselves are glamorized. Like some of these killers, they're real people. They're not supernatural beings in this uh, version of the world that's created in this book. And they're alive, many of them, and still in jail. And there are, you know, women who are throwing themselves at them, trying to marry them in prisons, like we saw many times with all these other real life serial killers. So the fascination with these cults followings around these killers in real life, even more so in these kind of celebrity killers or how these celebrity killers that will then propagate even more celebrity killers. It's all explored in the book. It's a very interesting stuff. I think it's really, really well done. It deepens something that didn't work for me in those Halloween films in, in a better way. So all this is the background. There's these women. They are analogs to these series of films. They've uh, created the support group. They're the only survivors, the final girls of each one of these different killers. And then someone starts killing off the members of the support group. So there's a killer out there trying to kill all the final girls. And there's like a clock ticking basically, right? Because now, just like you would have in a slasher movie, you start with X number of people and you're working your way down, right? 10 little Indian style, Agatha Christie, which is basically the template for all of these serial killer movies. So I really liked all the subtext he's trying to. He doesn't explore everything as deeply as I wish he would, but still much better than you normally get in these, these type of books and this type of entertainment in general. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I very much recommend it. I do have one giant complaint about this. I know the, uh, the book has been very well received. I do hope that the series, when it comes out, corrects for this. I literally picked out the killer in this book the first time that the, the particular character, I won't gender it, appears. And not only that, there is some complexity to what is happening and i'm not this is not a spoiler if you read the book you'll see that there has to be some complexity to what's actually happening given what hap transpires over time but not only did i identify the killer the first time that that person appears in the story i also understand the scheme very early on and as things are falling into place i'm like oh that fits into my theory oh that fits into my theory and i even knew the motivation for the killer. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm such a genius. I figured this all out. I feel like the book hits those clue points so hard that it's very hard to not figure it out. Now, I don't know if people don't figure it out. The book's been very successful and I haven't heard people complaining about the finale. So maybe they didn't figure it out ahead of time. I figured it out right away. All that being said, I thought that the way they deal with the material is interesting enough that it was still a satisfying book. And as a matter of fact, I think that the wrap-up is very well done. I think it's very clever. My only critique of the wrap-up is that when it begins, when the you know, final piece of the puzzle click into place and the machine starts to roll, I'm like, yeah, I knew all that. <laughs> I am not surprised by any of it. However, I would have loved to have gotten a sucker punch at the end of the book. So if you can read this book and you don't figure it all out, you know, don't pay too much attention, I would say, to the clues that are being left out there, because I think that it has a satisfying ending if I hadn't figured the whole thing out ahead of time. But uh, regardless, I still recommend the book. I, I think that it's interesting to create this world and then to start interrogating these questions about how we create these celebrities out of these victims and what is the psychology of the final girls. If you were 
if these people were really, truly final girls, there are women who deal with these similarly, not as extreme as what's in this book, obviously, I should say. But it does happen, of course. It does raise questions about our fascination with true crime, right? Imagine that all those serial killer films you were watching were actually true crime adaptations, which, by the way, is what's happening right now in you know podcasting, just for one example of how we love to see the Killer Next Door documentaries or whatever it is. It is maybe the most popular genre on TV, podcasting, and maybe even movies right now. And it does interrogate to some extent, what is our fascination? Glorifying both the victims and the killers in these circumstances. So interesting stuff, much meatier than you would expect for this type of book. And I really enjoyed it. I just wish I hadn't, I just wish that the clues hadn't been kind of laid out so easily from my, in my opinion, if you think you've stumbled upon a clue, don't think about it too much. <laughs> Just move on to the next page. I do hope that in the adaptation, the screen adaptation, they do change the resolution of the plot so that it's not so obvious uh, to the audience. Anyway, if you've read the book and uh, you disagree, let me know. Need some introduction at gmail.com. Next topic, Dexter New Blood, episode three. I've been enjoying the show so far, and I think they've been, the three episodes we've seen so far, each one has gotten better. If I have any general criticism of this particular episode is that I think Dexter always was a little campy, and we see a little of that campy tone sneaking back in here. And I'm not sure if that's what they want to do with the show this season, so I'm not sure if the tone is appropriate. It kind of almost feels like a throwback to throw some of these campy jokes into the show. But overall, it's working for me right now, so far. So the episode picks up immediately where we left off in episode two. Maddie's father, Kurt, basically put his foot down and was kind of making a scene, apparently has some bad blood with Angela. And Angela does feel like she did kind of maybe wrap up the investigation a little too quickly. And of course, Dexter was trying to get her to do so. And just as we left off last week, we have her continuing the investigation through the night. And of course, Dexter's fully aware that those police officers are investigating right on top of the body itself. So not a great situation for Dexter. And this is stressing him out as much as he gets stressed out. Meanwhile, Harrison is back in school or going to school. And on his first day, they ask him to come in and take a placement exam and register, etc. There's a little bit of a whole side plot going here where we see that Harrison's being drafted to join the wrestling team. And some of these jerks that we've met in the past couple episodes namely Zach, who is Audrey's boyfriend, and his goons apparently are all on the wrestling team. And there's also a police officer who is actively recruiting him, Harrison that is. And Dexter's kind of giving him the stink eye over this kind of pressure for him to join the wrestling team. So maybe we're setting some foundation for something yet to come. And there is an interaction between this police officer and Dexter later. Who knows, maybe he's interested in Angela, maybe he's suspicious of Dexter in general, or maybe there's something else going on here that we don't know fully yet. But I think they're definitely laying some groundwork here. And while the counselor or the principal, is it? I'm not sure which it is, is questioning Harrison and, and Dex. She says, oh, well, what brings you here? Why did you go to Miami? Oh, he was with a foster family. Oh, why were you with a foster family? Well, my stepmom died. Your stepmom died. And where was Dexter in the middle of all this? Dexter has no answer for this. In, <laughs> you know, he's not good at this apparently. And, and maybe he never was, but he should have some party line, some, some straight ahead story to tell here. Surprising that he hasn't even thought of coming up with one yet. But Harrison turns out to be pretty resilient. You know, he's been on the streets, so he's probably learned a few things. 
and maybe learn some things from Hannah as well, by the way. So he's able to quickly cover up and say, oh, well, you know, we had a falling out at the time and, you know, we weren't really speaking and pretty vague answer. But it does kind of assuage people more or less, although, you know, there's kind of like a little jab at Dexter being like, well, maybe we'll learn a little bit about Harrison today. And maybe you will, too, Dad. Right. So it is pretty <laughs> uncomfortable, this whole situation. Meanwhile, Dexter had been pulled away when he had to go drop off his son from a new discovery, a new discovery. There's a new a new clue, a new twist in our investigation. And it turns out that they have cameras in the woods who are tracking for poachers. So Dexter's like, uh-oh, here we go. I've been caught. But of course we know that's not the case. Dexter's got more lives than the proverbial cat. And this quote-unquote footage that they have turns out to be hit, heat signature. Very convenient that this is not an actual high-definition camera, but it's just a heat sensor, a thermal camera. And it does catch the stag, and it does catch Matt in the woods, but it also catches a third party, who we know is Dexter. And they actually bring Dexter in to say, hey, can you identify this gun from its heat signature? And he identifies it correctly as the gun that Matt was using. And then, of course, we actually see this other hunter. They both kind of seem to be moving in the direction of the stag's kill. But, of course, conveniently, no coverage in that spot. And they're like, as a matter of fact, you know, this is mostly Swiss cheese. This is mostly missing spots, which actually is true. I mean, that actually makes sense. But it is kind of convenient that, you know, the camera is only in the places where, you know, it only sees just enough to give Dexter an out. And then last weekend in the coming attractions, I had briefly seen an actor bumbling, coming out of a van, and I actually misidentified him, first of all, as some kind of news van, and second of all, as Eric Andre, of all people. Turns out it is not Eric Andre. I was completely wrong. <laughs> and I did, was, you know, at least smart enough to call out in my my comments that I'm like, I'm surprised they're not making a bigger deal that they got Eric Andre to come and do a cameo on here. But of course, it's because it was not Eric Andre. It's an actor called Aaron Andrade, who's been in a few things recently. He's on Defending Jacob on Apple TV, for example. And he does do some bumbling around. And I was not only wrong about the actor, I was also wrong about the fact that he is not coming out of a news van. He is the CSI. So he's bumbling. He seems inept. However, he's not. He's actually really bright. And he actually gets to the crime scene and correctly identifies everything, even the fact that there's a missing rock that had the victim's blood on it which of course Dexter did identify last time and uh, dispose of with a little Windex. <laughs> Sona was called that out as being a little convenient and maybe a little too easy. But his theory of the case is absolutely correct. He says we have one person coming from this direction, one from this direction. The victim fell backwards, was attacked, hit his head. The blood is the intermingling of human and stag blood. So basically, perfectly recreates the crime scene. So this is going to be a problem for Dexter potentially. And another problem for Dex is that they're bringing the dogs out. So the dogs are coming and they're going to be sniffing for Matt's body. Not good news for Dex. So that night, Dexter comes up with a plan. He digs up the body, but is he going to dispose of the body? No, he can't. He still can't think of a place. Where does he going to dispose of this body? He still cannot think of a place to do so. So instead, what he does, he gets the hunting jacket. Luckily, Harrison's knocked out cold, and in the middle of the night, he heads out, and with the hunting jacket, he does some kind of, uh, <laughs> looks like some kind of interpretive dance, to be honest with you. He swirls it around the crime scene and through the woods, and apparently, unless he's really clever about knowing exactly where these cameras are, he does not step into one of these heat signature cameras, although I would love to see footage of some guy doing this interpretive dance <laughs> of the veils over here with uh, this uh, hunting jacket, uh, <laughs> you know, stumbling through the woods. But he does wander and uh, basically uh, leaves 
theoretically, I don't know if this actually works this way or not, but leaves some kind of scent trail leading right to the highway, right where we found that glove or where he had placed that glove, I should say, and it was discovered last week. So reinforcing that trajectory of Matt's departure, even though, of course, we know this is, you know, more fabricated evidence. Does this work this way? I don't know. Are you a CSI? Please reach out to me, drop me an email and tell me if this would actually work in creating a sense trail. <laughs> so if you know anything about forensics, drop me an email and tell me if this makes sense to you or not. Conveniently, by the way, lots of conveniences. Harris has passed out, although maybe Harrison knows more of what's going on than not. I have some questions about Harrison. I've had him since last weekend, even more so this week. We'll get into that. But another convenience here is no one is guarding the crime scene. I mean, I know this is a small police force, but theoretically, this is a small town. Everybody knows everybody's business. If they know that this might be a murder, someone's going to be talking in a bar over drinks, maybe even the CSI or one of the cops. And they're going to be like, we better protect that crime scene. But no, there's nobody protecting the crime scene. There's not a camera left behind. Nothing, nothing behind. And of course, Dexter just goes and stomps all over the place. Doesn't leave footprints. I mean, I don't know about that either. Well, I guess everybody's stomping all over that place too, right? So, okay, maybe, maybe I'll take that one back. But I still feel like that is pretty convenient. And no one's guarding the crime scene when Dexter goes to manipulate the evidence. But something else happens that night also, which is the other big um, occurrence here, or the parallel storyline we have here, is that Matt's dad, Kurt, goes and chews out Angela for not having a better, having done a better job of investigating the crime scene. And she says, we're going to find him. If he's alive, we're going to start doing a, gr a grid investigation. We're going to go to the caves. We're going to go to all the recesses of the forest. To which Kurt goes, oh, are you going to go to the campgrounds also? And she goes, absolutely. We're going to go to the campgrounds, which we discovered or we were introduced to last uh, week when the kids broke in there and kind of hung out there. We're going to scour everything and we're going to do a grid search square by square. And we're going to start tomorrow and we're going to do a full investigation and we're going to find him. If he's out there, we're going to find him. Kurt might have gotten more than he bargained for because what he does at this point is he goes and gets our poor sacrificial lamb this poor girl that's been locked up and he releases her. He basically unlocks the doors remotely and she makes a break for it. And she runs out into the woods and he goes in the, in the coming attractions from last week. I had noticed that there was a sniper, somebody in a white mask. I actually thought this was potentially someone who Kurt had, you know, this is my speculation, had hired to track down Matt's killer and might be on the, you know, uh, on the verge of tracking down Dexter. Turns out, nope, it's actually Kurt himself, which I had already speculated was the the person who's watching this abducted girl on on his camera. And like I mentioned in last week's episode, I don't think it's supposed to be a secret who this character was, that it was actually him. And the reveal this week is so nonchalant, I assume we were supposed to have identified him last week, but now it's been confirmed, basically. But this poor girl runs into, this, into the woods or tries to escape. He comes out with a white mask on and a sniper rifle with a laser sight and shoots her, shoots her and kills her. And later in the episode... Maybe not immediately, but soon thereafter, we see a pretty grisly scene where he has now pajamas folded. So he's infantilizing these girls in some way, perhaps. Maybe he's posing them somewhere. But creepy, more creepy than that is that he is basically removing the bullet from her back. He's stitching her up. He's he, he's embalming her. And my thought is, that are there other girls out there? I mean, it seems to be missing girls in the area. Are there other girls that he has embalmed and preserved in some way? Anyway, this is pretty grisly stuff. And honestly, I'm a little tired of these poor girls being murdered in these shows. But I guess it's just a, a trope at this point, And we'll see how it pays off. But, you know, it's kind of what you expect. Maybe a little grislier than, <laughs> a little grosser than, than we need. 
we still don't know exactly what his fetish is. Like I said, we do see some of her pajamas folded neatly and everything. So maybe there is some kind of infantilization of these girls in some way. I'm not sure what the details are. A little clue here, which might be a clue, by the way. He is playing some music while he's doing this ritual of killing the girls and then embalming them and preserving them. And the first track he plays is Runaway, which might mean something. Was this girl a runaway? I'm not sure we ever confirmed that she was a runaway. Is that some part of his motivation? Is this kind of someone he knew in his past that she represents? But possibly a clue here, and maybe not even very subtle, by the way, is that later we see Edward Olson, the oil man, run into Audrey. And he's also playing oldies on the radio. Now, lots of older people listen to oldies, but in TV shows, these things are usually not coincidental. So is there something going on with these old rich guys where they have these preserved dead girls? Creepy, but possible. In the midst of all this, we also have a new character show up. This character will definitely be back, first of all, because it's played by Jamie Chung. And second of all, because when she shows up, she gets her own theme song. Turns out she's playing a character called Molly Park, who's a podcaster. Oh boy, podcasters everywhere, Inter you know, <laughs> intersecting with our Only Murders in the Building conversation from just a few weeks back. Check out those episodes if you haven't already. Very entertaining show, by the way. Very different. About a bunch of podcasters in New York City, of all places, who are investigating murder in their building. But she has a podcaster, and I like how they describe that her podcast is about murders. It's murder, but it's funny. And I'm pretty sure this is kind of a referendum on some of these very popular true crime podcasts that are out there, like My Favorite Murder, for example, right? As a comedy, believe it or not, comedy podcast about killers. I say believe it or not, but of course, that is a far, well, one of the most popular <laughs> podcasts in the world. So I'm sure people who are podcast fans know of that show. But I do find it kind of disturbing that these true crime podcasts have picked up so much popularity and what that might say about our culture. But Molly Park will definitely be back. She introduced herself simply as a citizen activist, but Audrey knows who she is and eventually lets An Angela know. We find a little bit more about Angela and her relationship with this character, Iris. She goes and speak to, I'm not sure if she's just a village elder or if she's a relative in some way, but they talk about Iris and they mention that she and Iris used to be bandmates. So this is someone who was close to Angela at some point. And I'm still curious to know, is Iris potentially, I'm sorry, is Audrey potentially Iris's daughter? Is it possible? Audrey actually mentions that she suspected this as well at some point, but she did the math or something and it wasn't the case. Maybe I'm getting that wrong, but I am curious to know what the whole Iris disappeared, Audrey is adopted by Angela, and what all of this means. I think it means something. Not sure what it means yet. We do also find out that Audrey plays the guitar. So the fact that Iris and Angela were musicians, does that mean something? Or is it simply just that they like to play music? Because, hey, Angela played music also. So this whole conversation plays out, or when uh, Audrey is giving Harrison a ride home. And this is where we see Olsen kind of creeps up on her and says, hey, do you need a ride or anything like that? but kind of threatens her as well. Ends things on this note of stay safe. This is where he's listening to some of those oldies and I'm wondering, hmm, is this uh, a clue or not? And there's a couple of things that happen here in the middle of the episode that I kind of uh, skirted around, but they are worth discussing before we get to the end. First of all, we have this conversation, <laughs> Deb. <laughs> I don't like this whole ghost Deb. I, it's not working for me. I know <laughs> uh, Sona's never liked Deb as a character and ghost Deb is especially irritating to me, uh, but it's just a, a strange device. Deb is harassing Dexter, who's very tired. He was up all night trying to create a scent trail for the dogs to follow. And, and it did that and that did work. But now he's trying to be a good dad to Harrison. 
And like I mentioned, there's a few things that happen here in the middle. One is Deb is harassing him and he's tired. And she's saying, what are you going to do? Where are you going to dispose of that body? They're going to find that body. And he suddenly has this, like I mentioned earlier, this very campy version of the wood chipper seen from Fargo. And they call it out explicitly. They go, what? Fargo? <laughs> like, it's not even like it's being subtle. They're, they're calling it out explicitly in the show. And it's done in a very strange and campy tone. Like literally like blood is flying at the car and he has to put the windshield wipers on. It's, it's very over the top and, and really not tonally matched to the rest of the episode. It's very strange. But another important thing that happens here too is that there's a lot of tension between Dexter and Harrison because he placed really, really highly when he took his exam to which the teacher said, well, he's, play he's placing at college level. So we think he cheated on his phone. And the teacher who was administering the test says, it's very easy. I can just let make him redo it. And Harrison says, I didn't cheat. But Dexter doesn't take have his back. Instead, he says, so just take it again. This is a very practical thing for him to say. And honestly, I'm not sure I would 100% disagree with that. But considering Dexter has been an absentee father, <laughs> he really should be doing a better job of trying to ingratiate himself with Harrison. And even though they do kind of patch things up by the end, it doesn't really earn him any points here at this moment. Just to close the circle on that, he does retake the test eventually and scores even higher. So he is you know, basically a genius. He has joined the wrestling team just to kind of close up the rest of the high school shenanigans. And earlier in the episode, we see that Harrison sees that Zach and his friends are bullying this nerdy kid in the class. They're sending him sexts basically uh, of a girl pretending you know, they're catfishing him basically pretending to be somebody and um, who's interested in him and trying to encourage him to, you know, send back embarrassing content, pictures or drawings. He likes to draw pictures. He's an artist of some degree. And Harrison doesn't like this. Harrison says, that's messed up. He says right to them, that's messed up. So that day at lunch, he actually goes and sits with the other kid and tells him, you're being catfished. Those guys are messing with you. And he sets up a little revenge where he sends back something like embarrassing, showing like Zach having sex with a llama or something. I don't know. I mean, some gif that he's created and sent it back to him. Zach doesn't like this. He doesn't like to be bullied, even though it's pretty minor bullying, by the way, but just being called out on his catfishing. This apparently very offensive to Zach. Very strange that he would react this way. But still, he like charges at the guy going like, how dare you? How dare you make a funny gif out of me after I've been embarrassing you for months? Harrison interjects and basically grabs him by the throat and says, don't do that again. Or, you know, I'll rip out your throat or some kind of threat. So Harrison's burning bridges with these bullies. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. And this is actually what leads to the whole situation where he's in the car with uh, Audrey later on. But I want to circle back to all that interaction at the high school because it ends with him receiving a FaceTime call from this bullied kid whose name I don't remember off the top of my head. And basically he goes, let me show you some of my artwork. And he shows him basically dressed up as the Punisher murdering all these kids. Like the, the artwork he's drawn is pretty extreme. And it makes me wonder what is up with Harrison here because of his reaction. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of kids draw a lot of really messed up things, especially when they're bullied in school. And you might not want to take it 100% seriously, but Harrison is not only totally not disturbed by anything he sees, he kind of kind of smiles and it's like, kind of like, oh, hey, what do you think? You're the Punisher or something? Takes it very, very nonchalantly. And I think the show, once again, in the real world, you may just react this way because you don't know what to say when somebody is FaceTiming you and showing you some really <laughs> bad artwork. But in the TV show, most things are not accidental or incidental. So I do wonder what they're setting us up with Harrison. First of all, he definitely is a vigilante. So that might be something he gets from his dad. But is he also murderous? Where is this going? And I'm pretty sure this is not just innocent. So 
I can't wait to have that conversation with Sona. I'm sure we will flesh all of that out in our conversation next week to see what she thinks is happening here. Meanwhile, we're getting close to the end of the episode here. Dexter's still desperately trying to find someplace, any place, to dispose of this body. So he thinks of the caves, and he goes into the caves, and he runs into a bear. So I'm not sure why we're introducing a bear here in the caves. Maybe this will pay off later. But he does find a very, very deep hole, and he's thinking of disposing the body there. But no luck. The bear comes and intervenes. But finally, once again, our young social justice warriors, Harrison and Audrey, find out that the stag is being held in like the butcher's locker in town. And Audrey finds this upsetting. Audrey has invited Harrison over for dinner. Dexter really just wants to go to sleep. He's been up for like over 24 hours at this point. But he finds out that Audrey and Harrison are having dinner at Angela's. He was trying to take the night off. He's like, oh boy, okay, I will come and have dinner with you guys. When he shows up, he finds out they question Angela. Why have you not done something with this stag? Why is it still sitting in that locker? And she's like, I haven't had time. I've been investigating this murder. And they're saying you have to do something with it. I already reached out to the elders and they want to have a bonfire for the this big white stag. And they say, you know what? That's a good idea. And they're like, we're glad you like that idea because Dexter, you're the one who's going to be transporting the stag to the bonfire. So Dexter still gets no rest. And they bring the stag out to the fire, which then makes Dexter think, aha, fire. Not sure why I didn't think of this first, but he does eventually come around to the smokestack. I don't know what they burn at this place and why they have an open fire pit for the town. Not sure what it is. Doesn't seem very environmentally conscious, but apparently they do. And he goes, aha, they're burning something tonight. Once again, I'm not even sure why they have these smokestacks and how open they are to the public. Maybe they are in these very rural areas. So I could be wrong about all this. But he goes out to the smokestack. There's a fire going and he throws in the body. Phew. Done with that. Matt's body has been disposed of finally. And he can breathe a little bit easier. And of course, these ashes of the fire are raining down on the town. He sees Kurt, Matt's father, dancing in the street. And he's like, huh. That's strange. Why would Kurt be dancing in the street? Because he knows that Matt is dead. Not exactly the type of thing you expect to see. To which Kurt says, oh, I'm celebrating because I heard from my son, Matt. I didn't just hear from him. He FaceTimed me. So I'm just so glad he's okay. I'm so glad he's not injured and everything's fine. Which, of course, raises the psychopath alarm inside of Dexter. Because Dexter knows not only is his son dead, so he couldn't have possibly FaceTimed with him. He's now very interested in thinking, okay, so Kurt is covering up something. What could he be covering up? Of course, we know what it is that they're killing off these girls, at least one girl and probably a bunch of them. And they didn't want the investigation. They didn't want the grounds to be continue to be searched for a potentially hidden or injured Matt, which might uncover clues to what's actually going on. So now, of course, I'm pretty sure Dexter, and that's going to be the trajectory for the rest of the season, is that Dexter will be investigating what that cover up might be. And that's where we leave it at the end of this episode. I honestly don't remember what was on the coming up next. Seemed like some kind of generic danger that we have coming up. So there we are. We're a little less than a third of the way through the season. This is all set up right now. And things are going okay. I'm still on board. There's a lot being, there's a lot of setup around Harrison. So is Harrison the new blood? Is he going to be the new Dexter? It remains to be seen how similar father and son may be. So that's the episode for today. Stay tuned later this week. I have a lot of things to say about the truly excellent episode of Succession that just premiered this week. And make sure if you haven't watched the show before, I highly recommend it. I'd say if you did give it a try and you struggled with it, I did struggle a little bit after the pilot, which I loved. I kind of did drop off, but it wasn't until maybe the middle 
of season one where the show really starts clicking for me and it's been great since then season two great and season three so far truly great and i think it's going to be one of those classic hbo shows in the long run so give it a try and uh listen to our recaps if you haven't sona will not be available to have that conversation with me yet but after the holidays she'll be back and we will fill and uh, she'll be filling me in on how she felt about this episode and as well as succession in those episodes those recap episodes and we'll see if she had a chance to watch anything else while she was on vacation if you're on vacation enjoy your thanksgiving with your families get vaccinated if you haven't already gotten vaccinated i am hoping that this thing gets better soon but the winter is going to be rough so stay healthy eat lots of turkey and i'll talk to you soon